the judgments. Um, and so he comes to me uh, after service and says, hey, why don't you go back and cover those judgments? <laughs> you know, you be the fire and brimstone guy. So, um, so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, we've got some fans up front here because it's going to get hot in here if you want one. But don't take off all your clothes. <laughs> so we're going to try really just to uh, kind of go back and look at each of those judgments, pick out some points from those judgments, and then really try to tie it all together at the end. So um, I got to tell you guys, uh, since the last time I've been up here, I got a new prescription. So... Um, I had a lot of trouble reading this morning, so <laughs> bear with me. Show me some grace this morning. Uh, I got it in 18 font. I don't know what else to do, but <laughs> anyways, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, before we do, let's go ahead and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we are just so blessed. We're blessed beyond measure, God, that uh, we could be here this morning, Lord, to offer up our praise and worship of you. Uh, and God, we just, we just want to do that this morning, Lord, and we just pray that anything that would hinder that, we would leave outside these doors, God. Let, let our hearts and minds be focused on you this morning, God, uh, and let us give you the worship and the praise that you're so worthy of. And God, we just pray that our worship this morning would be pleasing to you. And God, we just pray that you would bless your word as it goes forth, God. We know that all the power rests in your word and no one else. And so, Father, we just pray that you would bless your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right, so I got a little grief for going long, so we're going to get right in this morning. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read. Uh, We've got a lot of reading. That's part of the problem today, but we have a lot of reading. So we're going to start in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll read verses 3 and 4 real quick. It says, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, uh, for a long time their judgment has been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So Peter's going to start to go through these three judgments that we talked about. Um, and you notice he's really starting, he's trying to make this point of these false teachers. These false teachers who... Um, deceive these people they trick these people and deceive them by their their fancy words their clever speech their their lying to them and peter's trying to get this this point across that nothing escapes god's eyes even though that we may think we've gotten away with something even though that we may wonder why something has never happened judgment has never came trust and know that nothing escapes the eyes of god and that's what peter is going to get into uh, you know, the Bible says that not even two sparrows fall that God don't know about. Nothing escapes the eyes of God, and judgment will come. And that's going to be the theme that you'll kind of see, uh, along with something else here that, that Peter's really trying to hone in on. Uh, Peter's saying here, these people, you know, for these people that are like, yeah, yeah, and we've all probably said it at some point, when are they going to get theirs, right? They do all this evil, and you see these people on TV, and they're, they're preaching all this foolishness and teaching all this foolishness. And sometimes it's, you start to think, when? When are they going to get theirs? And Peter is trying to assure these people of this time that these false teachers, they're eventually going to get their judgment. The Bible says there that in Second Peter that their judgment is not idle. He's saying already their judgment is already upon them. They just don't know it yet. That's what Peter is saying there. God is going to bring his judgment, 
on this and everything else in his time and in the way that he wants to do it. So we see here that uh, he says that God didn't even spare these angels. So we should not think that somehow these false teachers are going to be spared or that we'll be spared from judgment when we live outside of God's will. He says that even these angels who are greater than men, they were created to be greater than men. Even they won't escape judgment because the Bible says whatever we show that, uh, so that we shall also what? Reap. We're going to reap what we've sown. That will come to fruition. You know, and there's some in here, I don't know, there may be some new people in here that kind of wonder, you hear us, sometimes we talk about Satan, we talk about demons and things like that, and you kind of wonder, like, I know when I was new, well, like, where did they come from? You know what I mean? Have they always been? So we're going to kind of look at that here a little bit in Ezekiel 28. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in all your perfect in your ways from the day you were created until what iniquity was found in you so here god is speaking of this this great this beautiful angel that was created by him and and he was this anointed cherub this archangel that that god god created to be so special and so beautiful and so powerful and he rebelled against god he started to think more of himself than what he really was, right? He started to think, well, I could be God. I could do that. Just like we do today when we shun what God's trying to tell us, that's the mentality that we have is, well, I could do that. I could be God. I could be the God of my own life. I can make my own decisions. And that's what Satan, that's the trap that he falls into, and he starts to try to usurp and take the authority that only God has. And that's the sin that was found in him was his pride that he wanted to be God or to be like God. You know, he got a little too full of himself like we talked about. And that's what Peter is trying to show here. Just like these angels, these great angels that God created and they got so full of themselves, they didn't escape judgment. So these, these false teachers that you see now and they're, they're, just, they're manipulating these people and they're getting rich off of these people, just like these angels that were condemned, just like these angels that were judged, their judgment is coming, and they won't escape it. Anybody, anybody have anybody come into mind when you start thinking about teachers being full of themselves and, and manipulating people? I'm sure we all have people like that. All you got to do is turn the TV on. You'll see it. You know, they're selling, selling healings for $100 or whatever you want to give. They're selling special water or special claws, and they're just deceiving the desperate to get wealthy. But God says their judgment has not escaped him, and their, their judgment is not idle, and it's already on them. And they act as if they have no other authority but themselves. They don't even submit to the authority of God. You know, and Satan was so manipulative and so cunning that it's amazing to me that he got a third of the angels to actually rebel against God too. And that's where we get our demons from. There are these fallen angels that also rebelled against God. So we'll see that here in just a second, that uh, he manipulated these angels. In Revelation 12, a lot of reading. And another sign appeared in heaven, 
Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the, to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness. There she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her. They should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great, great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and the angels were cast out with him. Now, I don't know how Satan convinced these angels to really rebel against their creator, the one that they were made for and created for to worship. I don't know what he did to get them to rebel. I have my opinion, and I'm going to share that. I might be wrong, but I don't think so. But I really think that he manipulated, again, their pride, just like he does with us. He manipulated the fact that they were beautiful, he manipulated the fact that they were these awesome beings. He manipulated that and played on that and actually got them to think the same way. And one other big thing is Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that God made the angels greater than man. God made the angels greater than man. They're more powerful. Uh, they're more beautiful. They're more intelligent. Everything about them is greater than man. But through the redemption of Jesus Christ... We have been made greater than angels. And so while these angels were created to be greater than men, God says that in Hebrews 2 that now you're going to go and be ministering spirits to these men. You're going to be helpers of us, helpers of these men. That's what the Bible says. And in the Bible in 1 Peter tells us that the angels are amazed they're amazed, they're perplexed, and they desire to look into and long to know this salvation plan. They long to know really why God loves us so much. They're amazed by it. They're amazed by the fact that we could mess up over and over and over again, and yet God still loves us and offers us redemption. That's what they're amazed by, that God would love us that much. Does anyone in here ever watch uh, Beverly Hillbillies? Yeah. Anybody know who Jethro Bodine is, right? I'm almost convinced <laughs> that the angels look down at us and think, there's another Jethro Bodine, right? <laughs> because we always do stupid things that gets us in trouble. We never really think about what we're doing. We just go headstrong into sin. We go headstrong into things that we shouldn't be doing. And we act just like Jethro Bodine, always getting in trouble, always looking dumb and silly because we want to do what we want to do. We all are always making mistakes. So ask yourself that the next time you want to do something that maybe you shouldn't. Do I really want to be Jethro Bodine? <laughs> ask yourself that. But anyways, you know, Peter here is... Uh, he's going on to say that just like these angels who rebel and they thought they were so great, these false teachers who think they're so awesome 
and they're so great, and they're never going to get caught, and they're never going to be judged. They're judged already. The Bible says they're condemned already. And while he allows some of these angels to roam freely, he has some that are condemned to the darkest regions of hell, of torment. And the Bible says actually one will be released in the end times, but we're not going to go into that. But, um, you know, and the crazy thing is, is they already know they're under judgment. These angels know they're not like us. They're not like people that haven't believed yet that just think they can do whatever they want. They already know they're under judgment. They already know they lose. In Matthew chapter 8, it says, uh, when he had come to the other side, to the country of uh, Gersegenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs uh, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come to torment us before what? The time. Now a good way off, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into this herd of swine. So they would rather get cast into these pigs rather than to go to this place that they know is waiting for them. They know that they're judged already. And they would rather go, there, go to this, these pigs than to go to that place. They know that they're judged already. So the next thing that Peter wants to talk about here is he moves on then from this angel example and he goes to uh, the example that probably almost everyone in here knows. Uh, he goes to Noah. And we're going to read about that in Second Peter here. It says, and, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And so we're going to go back here and read about that flood a little bit. So in Genesis 6, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent and thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then this beautiful verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, and this verse really, uh, really gets me when you think about it. Isn't that amazing to think about this? You know, this sin that we joke about sometimes and we, we take for granted and we just kid about and think it's no big deal. This sin that we do, the Bible says it breaks God's heart. That little white lie you told, that little thing that you did that you thought no one else knew, God's heart is breaking over that. And not only that, to think that every sin that we think is no big deal was a drop of blood that Jesus shed. That sin that we think is no big deal is, is a beating that Jesus took. We need to start thinking about sin that way instead of just joking it off and acting like it's no big deal because it's a huge deal because we see here that it breaks the heart of God when we do that. <clears throat> so we're going on here. And of course, the, the ancient world that Peter's talking about is this, this pre-flood world that, uh, that God had created. Uh, you know, this world, again, had gotten so wicked. It gotten so wicked that God finally says, that's it. I can't strive with you any longer. 
I've done all that I can do for you. And now it's time that my judgment's going to come. I'm going to bring my judgment upon you. But verse 8 is beautiful. It says that, that God gave Noah grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God always has a remnant. God always leaves a remnant. And Noah and his family was that. See, God always, always provides grace to those who will trust him. Always, even in the midst of the most chaotic thing in your life, even in the midst of the most troublesome thing, even in the midst of tragedy, God always provides grace to anyone who will trust him for it. Always. You see, it didn't say that Noah was perfect, did it? It didn't say Noah was awesome, so God saved Noah out of this flood. It said what? Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. Because when God told Noah what was going to happen, Noah believed him. Noah trusted it was going to happen, and Noah got to work doing what God told him to do. See, Noah sinned. Noah's just like us. He sinned before the flood, and believe it or not, he sinned after the flood, just like us. And that's amazing to me that Noah lived these hundreds of years, and he saw all these great things that God did, all these awesome things that God brought him through, and Noah still sinned and fell into temptation. We're going to read about one of those here. Genesis 9, it says, And Noah began to be a farmer and planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was what? Drunk. And became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment Laid it, both, laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. See, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. And this is really the only other thing that's recorded after the flood. That's what we have. Noah sinned. You can do all these great things, but when you fall into sin, what's your legacy going to be? When people look back at your life, what's it going to be? This preacher of righteousness that God had done so much for basically gave in to temptation, drifted a little, away from, a little bit away from God, and allowed himself to be tempted and fell into sin. The Bible says, take heed, lest you fall, right? Don't get so proud of yourself to think that you can do and you can dabble in things and not, not get caught up by it. Noah fell into temptation and fell into sin. And I'm not saying that drinking is a sin. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't teach that. But getting drunk is a sin. You can try to sugarcoat that all you want, but getting drunk is a sin. Once your mind is altered, you've sinned against God. You have sinned against God. You know, and the other thing is usually... Anybody in here ever done any great thing, come up with this great idea, had this great epiphany, done anything great when you were drunk? Anybody? No, no. What do we usually do when we're drunk? Dumb, stupid stuff, right? I thank God that there wasn't cameras around, phones around when I was young to, to tape me for evidence of how stupid I was when I was drunk. But that's the fact. We do dumb stuff when we're drunk. When we're, when we're consumed by alcohol, we do dumb stuff. We say things we shouldn't say. 
We do things we shouldn't do. We cause division in our families. We cause division in, in our relationships. All because we choose to go out and do things that we want to do and not listen to God. You know, and not only Noah, it's not only Noah that sinned, if you read that account, but Noah's Noah's sin actually opened up a gateway for his son to sin. He actually led his son into sin, his son Ham. Now, he's responsible for himself, but his sin led to Ham's sin. Because Ham saw his father naked and drunk, and what did he do? Did he cover him up like he should have? Did he respect his dad like he should have? No, he despised him. He despised him. And what else did he do? He goes out and does what? Gossips about his dad. Makes fun of his dad. Sin's so bad, really, in that sin that, that his sin, his offspring gets cursed. And that's something for us to think about, parents. Our parents, grandparents in here, is there anything in your life that could be a gateway for your children that could lead them into a path of sin? Is your life doing something that could hinder and harm your children and their life? As a parent, you've got a great responsibility for your children. They're looking up to you, whether you want them to or not, whether you take responsibility or not, you are the person that they look to. What is it we need to clean out of our lives to give our children the best possible chance that we can to succeed? Because we all have something. So it says Noah got drunk, and then again, you can read a few verses later. I'm not going to say it. It says Noah lived 350 years after the flood and died. That's what we have recorded. What do you want to have recorded about you? What is your legacy going to be? I got a little off track there, but the, the point is, is that and the point of this story is that even in the midst of judgment, God's grace is always there, and God's grace is faithful, and God is faithful. See, he built this ark. Noah built this ark back up in 2 Peter chapter 5. It tells us that he was what? A preacher of righteousness. For 120 years, Noah preached righteousness to these people around him. He told them about the judgment that was to come, told them how to escape the judgment. Every nail that was hammered into that wood was an account against these people that wouldn't listen. Every word that Noah spoke was an account against these people that wouldn't listen when he warned them of this judgment that was to come. 120 years, think about that. 120 years, God gave these people to turn from their sin and to trust him. God is gracious, and that's what we need to take from that story. God is gracious. But what did the people do? What did the people do? In Luke 27, it says... Jesus is saying this, and he says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came, and what? Destroyed them all. Destroyed them all. They went about their lives doing whatever they wanted to do, thinking they were accountable to no one or nothing. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and God shut him in the ark and then judgment came. Just like today. What do we have going on today, people? 
People think because God has not brought his judgment upon this earth that it's not going to come. People think that God is just way off and never going to visit this earth. But I tell you, as sure as I'm standing up here in front of you, judgment will come to this earth because God said it was coming. It's going to come. And we think that somehow we've escaped it or that God has forgotten about us. God has not forgotten about it. And just like when Noah entered that ark and shut the door, people today are going to be going about and doing whatever they want to do, living totally and willfully against God, and then all of a sudden things are going to change and judgment's going to come to this earth. And that's a promise. And now I want to take a look at this, this last judgment here that Peter talks about. 2 Peter, 6 verses, or 2 Peter 2, verse 6 through 10. It says, in turning, this, uh, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, um, and seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Okay, so now Peter goes on to this last example of of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm not sure if everyone knows the story of that, but uh, we're going to kind of read that real quick. So, um, it kind of picks up, we're going to start in Genesis 18. God, uh, the angels had just come to Abraham and Sarah and told them that they were going to be blessed, that they were going to have this great nation, they were going to have a child. Uh, and then it picks up to where God, God t- starts to tell Abraham something else. And it says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am going to do? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they what? Keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. Now, we know, of course, that God already knows, right? He's just warning Abraham of what's about to happen. See, Lot, Lot is there in Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot is Abraham's nephew. And God knows that Abraham loves, uh, uh, Abraham loves Lot, Lot, his nephew. So God is warning Abraham what's going to happen here to his nephew. And God is going to bring it. God's going to bring judgment. When it's time for God to bring judgment, he's going to bring Judgment, And then we see, you know, Chris talked about a little bit last week that uh, Abraham starts to bargain with God, right? He starts to say, well, God, surely, surely, God, if there's 50 people, 50 righteous people there, you won't, you won't destroy that city. And God says, I won't do that for 50 people. And then 45, <laughs> and then 40. And then he gets God all the way down to 10. If there's 10 Righteous people in that city, God, will you destroy it? God says, I won't destroy it for 10. But we know there's not going to even be 10. Now, Abraham is a very good bargainer, isn't he? (laughs) I'm convinced that my dad learned from him. Dad probably could have got him down to five. 
But he's bargains him, and he gets it all the way down to 10. He gets it all the way down to 10. And we know there's not going to be 10. There's not even going to be 10 righteous people found in those two great cities. You know, when you see, uh, go through Scripture and you see evil cities and evil people mentioned, all those things, Sodom and Gomorrah comes up more times than not when that's mentioned because it is one of the worst places ever mentioned in Scripture. It is the most, one of the most sinful places ever mentioned in Scripture. They're wicked as they come, and they're as perverted as they come. They have that anything-goes mentality. Do whatever you want to do. It's only relative. If you think it's good, it's good. If you think it's bad, it's bad. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that sounds real familiar, don't it? That's the way they're thinking. They get so bad, that, and uh, these people, that these angels come to visit Lot, and Lot brings them into his home, and he feeds them, and he, and he welcomes them into his home. And that the people of the city see this, and they're in outrage. And they came, out to the, they came out to Lot's house, and they start knocking down his door and banging in his door because he, they say, Lot, bring those men out so that we can have sex with them. That's how perverted this nation had gotten. That's how perverted these cities had gotten. But the angel of the Lord steps in. He blinds the people. And then we're going to pick up there in Genesis 19. We've got a lot of reading here, 12 through 26. It says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in this city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But his son-in-laws, to two his son-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, Hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, uh, lest you be consumed in the punishment of this city. And while he lingered... The men took hold of his hand, his wife's hands, and his daughter's hands, the Lord being merciful to him. So they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside the city that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look back, nor stay, uh, stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, that uh, least you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest evil will overtake me, and I will die. See now this city near to me, uh, near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape to, the, to there. It is not a little one. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have, for, I have favored you concerning this thing also. In that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I, I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun, when the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from, uh, from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Whew. 
A lot of reading. So we see here this famous city again of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm sure we all have seen the movies or watched something about it. Uh, but God judged this city, this wicked city, in his time and in his way. God brought judgment. But you can also see in this story that grace was there, right? Grace was still there in the presence of all of this wickedness. God still offered his grace. The angels blinded these men, and they tell Lot to get out of the city and to get his family out. And really, really the angels say, anybody that will listen to you, Anybody that will listen, anybody that you have in this city that will listen to you and believe you, get them out of this city because it's going to be destroyed. Anybody that will listen to you. And then Lot goes to his sons-in-laws and and he tells them this word, you know, get out of this city because it's going to be destroyed. And what do they do? They laugh at him. They laugh at him. That's what that word means in the Hebrew, laughing at him. They laughed at him thinking he was crazy, right? God's not going to bring judgment upon this city, thinking he was crazy. And then really, Lot and his wife and his daughters, they're really acting like they don't want to go either, aren't they? They're so bad and so ingrained into this society and into this sin of this city that it says really they stalled and they hindered. They didn't even really want to go. So much so that by the grace of God, these angels grabbed them and drug them out of the city to safety. They had begun, become so engulfed into this community that they were in, so in, engulfed into this sinful lifestyle that they were in, that they really didn't want to go either. Lot's wife was so consumed and entangled into this culture and this lifestyle that she looks back and it ruins her. She turns into a pillar of salt. She dies. And that should serve as a great reminder to us, church. When God has delivered you from something, don't look back to it. Don't think that you can dabble around in it and dip your toes in it and test it out and you're strong enough because you're not strong enough. You're strong by the grace of God. And your strength comes from knowing that you're weak. And if God has delivered you from something, don't turn back to it. It baffles me, and we see it all the time. People, God delivers people from sin, and, and then they want to go and start to hang out with the people they used to hang out with. Or they want to start going to the places that they used to go. What's going to happen? Are you going to influence those people, or are they going to drag you down? I mean, let's be honest. They're going to drag you down. I'm not saying don't witness to them or anything like that, but you've got to do it on your terms. Don't turn back to the sin that God's delivered you from already. Nothing but doom and destruction will come from that. Nothing will come from that good. And if we continue to do that, we're eventually going to see our lives wrecked. I want to go back to 2 Peter chapter 2 here real quick. It says, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. You know, we can make a lot of parallels between uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the world that we live in today. I mean, everything is exactly the same. Almost everything is exactly the same. It's whatever you want to do mentality. If you don't think it's wrong, it's not wrong. If you love doing it, go ahead and do it. If it makes you happy, go ahead and do it. Whatever you want to do. Whatever sin that you want to do, if it makes you happy, then it can't be bad. And we're seeing that today as well. 
I mean, we've gotten so bad in our society now. You know that there's kids that think they're dogs and cats now. That's how bad that it has gotten in this society. That what point, at what point as a parent do you just say, quit being stupid? <laughs> you're not a cat and you're not a dog. I tell you, bring them over to my house when it's dinner time. I'll break out some nine lives and some kitty litter, and we'll see how much they want to be a cat. But yet we just accept it, don't we? We just accept it because they beat us down, and they beat us down, and we just accept it. And we just become just like the society that we live in. We just become just like the society that we live in. We get engulfed in this world and this society And the Bible says there, though, that it tormented Lot's soul. Does it torment your soul? As a Christian, it should torment your soul when you look around this world and see how evil and wicked it has gotten. It should torment your soul to think of all these atrocities and all these things that they're trying to teach your children is normal. It should torment your soul that we murder millions of babies every day day that should torment your soul if you're a Christian what are we doing about it are we praying for our country are we praying for this nation are we praying for this world or are we just so consumed with ourselves in our prayers that's all we pray about we get so many great examples from scripture of these Old Testament people that saw the sinfulness in their world and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed For their country and what was going on. Do we let it affect our soul that way? Or have we just gotten so ingrained in society that it's no big deal? They're just going to do what they're going to do. And I'm going to stick my head in the sand and, and just get along. How are we living our lives? What are we doing? Do we do that? Do we show by our actions that we're different? Do we show by our actions and by our words that we're holy? God said to be holy, to be set apart, to be weird. Are we doing that? Are we being a preacher of righteousness like Noah was? You have influence over people in your life. When they look at you, are they seeing Jesus through you? What are we doing with our lives to be set apart and to be holy? The Bible says to be in the world. Jesus said to be in the world, but what? Not of the world. Have we become so acclimated to this world that sin no longer affects us? That we're just willing to accept it and let our, let our kids and everyone else around us be affected by it? Or are we going to be a preacher of righteousness who says, nah, not anymore? Are you living a life that can influence others? I want you all to ask yourselves that as a believer. Am I living a life that will influence someone for Jesus? What am I doing with my life that will influence my children, that will influence my family, that will influence my community for Jesus? What am I doing? In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were what? Pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
God wants to use you. God is begging through you if you're a Christian. He wants you to live in a way that shows his love and shows his mercy to others and his grace. Are we living that way or are we just going to accept the world that we're in and just go along and get along? See, because from what I read here, I don't really think Lot was living that way. Some people may uh, be mad at me for that. I really don't think he was. I mean, we get some good examples from that, that for one, why did Lot not move his family out? He had the resources. His uncle was very wealthy. He could have taken his family out and not let it be influenced by such a sinful, sinful nation. But he didn't, right? He got acclimated to it, too. He started to kind of like where he was at, too. The other one, was anyone in the city influenced by him? If he was really living righteously, wouldn't someone be influenced by him to believe him when he said God was going to bring this judgment and he offered this escape? No one in the city, not even his sons-in-laws, were influenced by him for God. His wife, his daughters really didn't even want to go with him. They had to be drug out. But the beautiful thing in this is that even though Lot wasn't faithful, God was faithful, wasn't he? The Bible says when we are faithless, God still will remain faithful. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful promise by God. Because, again, Lot wasn't, Lot wasn't righteous by his good deeds, right? Lot wasn't righteous because he was some awesome guy. Lot was righteous because what? He trusted God when God told him something. That's why Lot was saw as righteous. And I want you to ask yourself, and we'll close here pretty soon. Ask yourself, if you're a Christian, am I only in the world or am I of the world? Ask yourself that tonight. Pray that God would open your eyes. Most of us probably already know. But dig deep and, and really ask yourself those tough questions. Am I being an influencer? Am I showing Jesus? So just a few points that we can take away from this because, you know, in 1 Corinthians 10, that Peter, or Paul says that all these Old Testament saints, all these stories were given to us as examples so that we can learn from them. Even though most of the time we don't, that's what God gave, them us, gave that to us for, that we could learn from their mistakes, that we could not revisit the same thing that they did. So what can we learn here? One, judgment is sure and judgment's coming. Just as sure as I'm standing up here in front of you, judgment will come to this nation and to this world. It's going to come. Two, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you have tomorrow to come to Jesus for forgiveness. You know, there's so many people that went to bed last night that had great plans for today. And there's thousands upon thousands of people who are making plans today that won't be here tomorrow to see them. Don't fall into that trap that God is so far off and God is so, I, I'm escaping God's judgment. Don't fall into that trap. You've got today that God's given you. Once God's patience runs out, once your time runs out, that's it. Don't fall into that trap of being arrogant and thinking that you have tomorrow. And God is not slow about his judgment. Because he waits doesn't mean that he's forgotten. Doesn't mean that you've tricked him. Because he waits doesn't mean that. You know why he waits? Because he loves you. Because he loves us. Because he loves mankind. That's why he waits. 
Nothing, no other reason. It's not like he's up there still creating his plans. God already knows, but he waits and waits and waits to give the very last person that will believe time to believe. He is patient towards you, wanting you to come to him. 2 Peter 3 says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is what? Patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why he lingers in his judgment, because he loves you, because he's patient with you. So if you're in here and you're a believer, uh, what I want you to take from this is uh, God is faithful. God is good, and God is faithful. But his faithfulness and his goodness should drive us to want to be better for him, not to take advantage of the grace that he's shown us. That goodness and that mercifulness should drive us to want to be more and do more for God. You know, we all in here, if you're a believer, you're, everyone in here that's a believer knows, you know that judgment is coming. You've sat here long enough and know that judgment's coming, and you know you have family members that are under that judgment. What are you doing about it to influence your family, to bring your family to Christ? Are we a preacher of righteousness by our words and our actions? And if you're not a believer in here today, as hard as this is to say, I love you enough that I'm going to say it, you're under judgment. The Bible says that you are an enemy of God if you've not come to Christ. But the beautiful thing is, like what we read about, there is always grace. God loves you. God is holding off and wanting you to come to him. Wanting you to trust him for what he's done. He's already done the work. He's already paid every price that had to be paid for your sin. All he's asking for is that you'll believe him for it. That you'll trust him for it. For you. It's easy to read for God so loved the world. Here, did he do it for you? Do you believe that he did it for you? That's what he's waiting for. Will you trust him? The Bible in John chapter 6 says, For God, for this is the will of my Father... That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have what? Eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 47 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who what? Believes. Believes has what? That's the exchange. Not he who does all these great things. He who quits this and that. He who is perfect. He who believes. He who will trust me for it. God says, I'll give it to you. That's all he's waiting for. That's all he is waiting for. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you and we're just, God, we're just amazed by your love and your grace, God. We don't, uh, we don't even fully understand how much you love us, God. But God, we're thankful for it this morning, God, and we just, we're so thankful for your son, Jesus, God, who even though he knew all that we would do, all the times that we would do him wrong, all the times that we would forsake him, all the times that we would choose ourselves over him, he still loves us and was still willing to come and die in our place for anyone who will believe. And God, we're just so thankful for your grace and mercy this morning, Lord. And God, we just pray that 
for us as believers, Lord, that, God, that you would penetrate our heart, Lord, that you would help us to see, Lord, what you want to do in our lives, God. Help us to be that preacher of righteousness, Lord. Help us to influence our loved ones, those that we care about, God. Help us to be that, that light in this dark place. Help us to be that beacon of hope, God. And God, for those in here that are listening on tape or on, on the internet that hasn't believed, Father, we just pray that today would be the day, Lord, that you would open their eyes, that their heart would be penetrated, God, that they would see that you've done the work, that you've paid the price, and that you loved them enough that all they have to do is trust you for it, Lord. Then we give you all the praise and glory for it. And God, we pray as we go about our day today and in our lives throughout this week and the weeks to come, that what we do and what we say would bring glory and honor to you. Let our actions match our professions, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.